Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning. Um, it is a 4th of July weekend, lots of summer vacations going on, and that um, we are glad that you have chosen to be here with us this morning. Welcome. Um, welcome to those of you who are watching online. We're glad that you're joining us this morning, wherever you are. And um, we just love that this nation was born out of being free from a tyrannical government. And I don't know about y'all, but under the law, we lived under a tyrannical government that we could never fulfill and we could never please. We could never be good enough. But this morning, I love the scripture that says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he wants you to live in a freedom of his goodness and his love and his kindness and his mercy over you and in your life. And, um, and so we have been invited into a new covenant in him. And the Bible says that it is for freedom that Christ set you free. So this morning as we stand, if you're able to, we're going to jump into worship. I love something that Rodney said this morning. There is no legal claim on your life. There's no legal claim to keep you in shame. There's no legal claim to keep you in guilt. There's no legal claim to keep you in condemnation. Because Christ has freed us from every past sin, every present thing that you messed up this morning on the way to get here. Whatever you're going to do in the next years until you die. He has freed you from a tyrannical um, enslaving enemy that wants to lie to you and tell you that you can't be near. I think one of the greatest barriers to intimacy with Jesus is shame because you can't be transparent. You can't be really real. You can't let him know what's really going on, who you really are. Somehow you've got to have like this guard up. And when there's a guard up, then it keeps you from real intimacy. And the Bible says that the blood of Jesus brought us near. The blood of Jesus has brought you near this morning and it has removed every shame, every guilt, every condemnation, and he wants you to live in a place of freedom this morning. So we're going to worship and we're going to love on Jesus this morning. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you this morning because the word of God says that Holy Spirit, you are the Lord. And where the Lord is, there is liberty. So Holy Spirit, would you bring freedom to every place that would want to hinder intimacy with Jesus and knowing him and being close and being near? Would you remove every divide? Would you remove every gap, every divisive place that would keep us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and has been shown to us again and again and again? Jesus, we make your name great and we turn our heart's affection to you because you are the one who knows me best, but you're the one who loves me the most. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place to transform hearts, to renew minds, and to breathe life and freedom into our, our being, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together, y'all.
Lord, we worship you. Lord, thank you, God, that what do you bring a king who has everything? Jesus, you don't need anything, but you want us. You want our hearts, Lord, our affection, our adoration, our love for you this morning, Lord. God, it is, words seem like it's not enough, Lord, but our hearts, God, Lord, our hearts are full of love for you, Lord, and that's what we give you this morning. We give you everything that we are because you're so worthy. Yeah, Lord, you are worthy of adoration and love and affection because that's what you've poured out on us first, Lord, and we worship you. Thank you for your kindness and your love towards us this morning. Thank you for the freedom that you've brought to us, Lord. Thank you for the freedom that you paid for, for us to live in a complete place of freedom, Lord, from shame and guilt, Lord, and just the condemnation that would come from the accuser that would tell us that we're never enough, that we're not good enough, Lord. And Jesus, you knew that already. That's why we don't look to what our abilities are, Lord. We look to what you've completed and finished for us. We look to what you have done, not what we've done. Thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice is more than enough to bring us near. Lord, we worship you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for just your presence with us and among us, Lord. We worship you this morning. We worship you, Lord. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We're so glad that you're joining us this morning. If you're a guest with us and new, we'd love for you to fill out a connection card at dothancf.com. If you're watching online, you can do a connection card there or a prayer request. We'd love to contact you and connect with you and pray for you. Um, this Sunday, we are so excited to be welcoming um, Esther Rose and Mary Grace Zimmerman. And um, these are two beautiful, lovely little girls that are being adopted by Tim and Christina. And um, we can't wait to celebrate with them. There is information in the newsletter if you got that. With all the details, they are registered at babylist.com. We're going to be doing a shower for them immediately following the service next Sunday. It's for our ladies. So ladies, bring something to share, some kind of little light finger food. We'll have some punch cake and tea and coffee. And guys, get together and hang out. You know, go to lunch together, go grab a burger, and if you don't know one another, have some great conversation, and um, take the kids with you as well, and um, just enjoy some connection. So, um, y'all like how I dropped that, ladies? Um, there you go. Um, so, thank you so much for doing that. If you need more information, please come and see me. I'd love to um, just have some conversation if you need that. Um, our, um, at the end of July... Um, there is a Southeast Fellowship Association that Dave and I have been connected to through Pastor Stanley and Erica Harris at All Nations Family Worship Center. And through them, we've been able to connect with a whole group of pastors and um, just some of their church family. And they are inviting us to come and be a part of a family fun day at Walden Park on July the 29th. It is um, barbecue, it's festivities, it's the pool, it's sack races, it's all kinds of fun, it's music, it's face, face painting. So just a fun family church connection day of 
uh, churches that are in the Southeast Fellowship Association area. So we are requesting, will you please check out that information on our website and sign up. If you're going to plan to go and commit to it, sign up now so that we can make sure we've got a good number to them so that they can plan. They're doing all the barbecuing and food, and we want to make sure that we are um, honoring of that time for them, that time frame to be able to uh, plan and prep adequately, okay? Um, So come out. It's just going to be a great day. I remember in the early days, um, David and I, we gathered with different churches when we were stationed in England, and we did like softball. Oh, I forgot there's going to be like softball as well. So there's like softball with other churches, and it was just a hanging out day and barbecue and stuff like that. And we just got to know one another and just have a fun day. So, um, so just if you're new to DCF, this is a way to connect not only with your DCF church family, but also a way to connect with other churches um, in our southeast region. So um, summer connections are on the website, the pool and the water world, all the details are there. And um, you can give in online, which is what we prefer, or there's a box for giving at the front if you're in person this morning. And we are going to dismiss our kids and our youth, and uh, we'll be right back with a message. All right. Good morning, everybody. I am uh, preaching a one-off message today. I know you guys think that's impossible for me to do, but I'm going to prove you wrong this morning. So I want to preach a, a message this morning called The Throne of Grace. So obviously that comes from a scripture in Hebrews. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, But let me start with a a story. About 10 years ago, um, I came across a video. Most of you guys have heard this. I've preached it many times. Uh, I came across a video on YouTube called You're Tying Your Shoes Wrong. And being in my 40s, I knew they were crazy. Of course, I'm not tying my shoes wrong. I'm 40-something years old. So I watched it. Found out I was tying my shoes wrong. <laughs> so the way, you, the way you know, there's a TED Talk on this, by the way. It's really awesome. It lasts about three minutes. And the way you know is when you tie your shoes and then you pull on the, on the, uh, the loops um, and then let them go. If it's right, they'll stay horizontal. And if it's wrong, it'll go up and down. And so I did that. In my, and, and I'm like, I've been, all this, my whole life, I've been tripping over my shoestrings. You know, they'd come undone and I would trip over them. And I was like, well, that's just common for everybody. <laughs> I thought everybody had the same problems. Like, nope, just me, because I tied my shoes wrong. So um, that was revolutionary for me, and it was also very humbling. And it helped me um, kind of recognize, I wonder if there, are anything, if there are other things maybe that I'm doing wrong or that I've misunderstood. So I remember how that made me feel. So my question to you is, have you ever had that experience where someone corrected you? And maybe they did it poorly. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're like, I don't really like how you did it, but the fact that, you know, it's actually true. I was wrong. Or, I mean, if you're married, this has never happened to you. I'm sure if you've been married, but uh, we've learned that how you correct somebody is, is oftentimes just as important that you correct them, right? <laughs> Cause it makes it easier to receive. Um, but how do you do, how do you handle that? When someone tries to bring correction to you, um, how do you handle it? Is there humility there? Or you, do you kind of, as a Southerner say, do you bow up and go, that's, you know, it's none of your business how I tie my shoes, right? How do you handle that? Um, for me, I recognize that maybe I didn't handle it so well. So it was a lesson for me and I had to make some, some changes. So I want to talk to you uh, this morning about, first of all, about a guy who was corrected in scripture and how he handled it. Um, and then, and, and, and it was about something 
pretty significant, as you'll see in just a minute. And then I want to talk to you about something that maybe you are doing wrong. Maybe you're tying your shoes wrong in a metaphysical, spiritual sort of way. Um, and I want to see if I can bring an adjustment to that. So maybe you're not. Maybe, you tie, maybe you're the one guy who's been tying your shoes right the whole time, and you're going to listen to this message and go, Dave, that was not at all helpful. But probably not. So I'm just going <laughs> to challenge you with that. So I call this part of it the, what we call the Apollos effect. And so Acts 18, 24, 26, there's this kind of, uh, Scripture does this, like it, it goes really big picture, talks about, you know, um, the, the universe and creation and all these huge things, and then it'll drill down really, really, really tight down into the micro level, and it'll talk about a single person in their account and their, you know, something that happened to them, and then it'll back way back up and talk big picture, and it's and it, almost like, like this rhythm of things, and it gives you this, this ability to see big picture but also to drill down and really get a hold of things in the, in the micro level, part of, you know, in the, in the actual acts that you are creating, the things that you are doing that maybe is actually affecting the big picture, right? And, it, and the, the idea behind it is there are some small things that you potentially are doing that create bigger problems. Or there's some small things that if you get right um, in the early foundations and it, and it solves big problems or the bigger problems actually never even come up. And so... Um, this is kind of a picture of one of those drill down moments. This is Acts 18, and uh, Luke is talking about a guy named Apollos. So it says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So this is a story. We're going to talk about where, he, where he'd been before. But it says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It's an interesting phrase, right? And it goes on and it says, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now listen to that phrase again. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. However, <laughs> he only knew about the baptism of John. So how much accuracy was going on if all he knew was, like, he, it wasn't wrong, it was just incomplete. So I want you to keep that in mind. And it, and it goes on, he says, uh, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And so Luke kind of gives, gives you a little bit of, of a picture of this guy. So he says um, he was an educated man. So Apollos was from Alexandria, which was one of the greatest learning centers of the ancient world. Um, they had the largest library in the ancient world. There were, uh, he was a Jew, Apollos was a Jew, but he was trained in Greek culture and educated in both Jewish tradition and the Greek culture. So he was what, what scripture would call a Hellenist. He was a, he was a Jewish man who, who followed after scripture, but understand, he understood the bigger, the bigger world, the culture of the world. So he, was, he, he understood the Greek aspect of things. And then it said he was eloquent in speech. And this, uh, the meaning from that original word, eloquent, means he had a special gift to explain his thoughts in a way that captured the intellect and swayed the emotion of his listeners. So he was, he was a, you would love to listen to this guy, right? And then it said he was mighty in the scriptures. Remember, he was a Jewish man, so he knew the Bible. As, as a Jewish man in that day, um, by the time you turned 13 years old, you had memorized the first five books of the Bible. That was, that was required of you before your you know, bar mitzvah. And so he knew the scriptures in and out. He was, he was mighty in the scriptures. And that word means it, it's like dynamite. He was dynamic in his preaching. So when he would preach, people would pay attention. 
Um, some people even believe that Apollos authored the book of Hebrews. John Calvin, Martin Luther were two prominent men who believed that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. Now, some people believe it was Paul. Again, it doesn't really make any difference. The author never names himself, so we can't really know, but it, it would fall into line with all the, you know, the aspects of his resume. So whether you believe that or not, uh, whether you believe he authored the book of Hebrews, he was obviously a pretty powerful and intimidating man, right? Can you imagine uh, connecting with this. And then verse uh, 25 spoke, he spoke and he taught accurately. And again, I said this was, uh, he taught the word of God accurately, except it was incomplete because all he knew was the baptism of John. So here's a picture of Apollos. Apollos, uh, he grew up in Alexandria. So that's down in Egypt. Some, some time in his life, he made his way as an adult male. He made his way up into Jerusalem at the time John the Baptist was preaching. So remember the story, John the Baptist is in the wilderness, he's preaching repent because the Messiah is coming. So he hears this and he becomes one of John's followers. We know that because he comes and he's teaching about the baptism of John. He's saying, you need to get baptized, why? And repent of your sin, why? Because the Messiah is coming, he's coming to rescue us. So this is preparing the way of the Lord, right? So he's preaching all this, but again, it's incomplete. So I just imagine John the Baptist, is, this is not necessarily in scripture, but I imagine this. I imagine John the Baptist got, um, he got there, he got, he heard the preaching of John the Baptist and he was like, this is, this is truth, man, this is awesome. I'm, and he got caught up in it and he became one of John's disciples and he was so invigorated and so excited about the testimony of the Messiah is like on the verge, he's about here. Oh, it's, you know, it's the time for Israel. Ah, you know, God's moving and it's just so awesome. And he got so excited that he goes on a mission trip up to Ephesus. So he goes, he comes from Alexandria and he goes around the Mediterranean Sea, whether he traveled by land or went across on boat, don't know. But he goes from Alexandria to Jerusalem and then he finds his way into Ephesus, a, a massively uh, Roman Greek cultural center, right? And he's preaching the gospel according to John the Baptist, right? So, so in this, so that's the picture of what's going on. And then in the process of this, because he's, he's preaching it boldly, the Bible says. And then Acts 18, 26, the last part of it, it says, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. So Aquila and Priscilla were uh, contemporaries of Paul. They were part of his team. They were uh, business people, entrepreneurs who had been kicked out of Rome during the Jewish, you know, w when the, some of the challenges came to the Jews. And so they were down in Ephesus. That was a, the main route away from Rome. One of the main routes went through Ephesus. So they find themselves in Ephesus. Um, they're tent makers like Paul, and so they connect. Paul and, and, and Aquila and Priscilla connect. And so anyway, they're a big part of the team. So Aquila and Priscilla have heard the gospel. Paul's preached the gospel. Not the gospel of John, but the gospel of Jesus, right? So he's, they've heard all this. And so now they, they some maybe in, in a forum or something, they hear him preach. I just I try to imagine what this connection might have looked like. So they hear him preach. He's powerful. He's eloquent. Everything is amazing about this guy. Who wouldn't want to hear this guy preach? But listen to what it says. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. <laughs> I just love that phrase. They took him aside and explained, him, explained to him the way of God more accurately. Right? So, so a couple things about this. Um, would you have done that? Like, you, you hear this preacher, and man, he is, he is letting it fly. I mean, he is powerful. His words are dynamite. He's eloquent. Like all these amazing things, he's mighty in the scriptures, and he is passionate. He's, he's laying it down. And you hear him. Now, what I love is they didn't interrupt him, right? Because was, it wasn't that he was inaccurate. Listen to what it says. It said, 
they took him aside, which means they didn't interrupt him while he was preaching. They took him aside and they explained to him. Explained is not a, you're doing it wrong. This is a coffee, right? So somewhere in Ephesus, they had a coffee shop. And they said, hey, could we grab coffee with you after the message? He's like, yeah, sure. And so they sit down and they begin to explain to him. So think, first of all, about how intimidating this guy was, but how much Aquila and Priscilla loved the truth so much that they said, he's missing some things. And, and, it's, and it, we would do him a, a disservice if we didn't explain to him. Now, what he does with that, can you imagine, like on the front side of it, What's this? What's going to happen? Is he going to accept it? Is he going to reject it? Is he going to be mad? Because he's a, you don't want to make powerful people mad, right? That's it's intimidating, and yet they pursue it and they explain to him. But think also about Apollos. He just preaches this powerful message that's mostly accurate, <laughs> and this this powerful you know entrepreneurial couple who, who who are known in the area as powerful people come and said, "Hey, could we grab coffee?" which is code for, you know, I have some splaining to do, to do to you, Lucy, right? And so what would you have done? Would you have gone to coffee with Aquila and Priscilla? <laughs> right? Would you have heard when they challenged with you with, hey, man, I love what you're doing, but the, I want to, can I speak to this? Can I make a father's adjustment? <laughs> However you say it, right? You can say it as, as eloquently as you want, but at some point in your heart, if you're hearing this, you're realizing, okay, I've gotten something wrong and I'm, I'm about to get corrected. How do you handle that when someone comes to you? How did you handle it as a kid? I didn't like it, <laughs> right? But I learned the value of someone who cared enough to push past whatever issues were in the way. And, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm like that. I'm, I'm intimidating in terms of I'll, I'll take over the conversation. Uh, there's that's nothing wrong with that in terms of God called me to teach and preach. and That's wonderful. But at some point, if someone wants to challenge me and push back, I have to make a decision what I do with my personality. And I have to make a decision that I love truth more than I love anything else. Not my truth or your truth, because there's no such thing. There's only the truth, right? And so that's the picture. So then we follow the story. So he received it, obviously. It's the good news. The next verse, 1827 says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia. So he, he was there in Ephesus. He preached there a while. He's sensing a call from the Lord to go to Achaia, another area. And he says, when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, the Christian brothers that he was influencing and had connected to in that city, wrote, exhorting the disciples in Achaia to receive him. So, so they write him a letter of recommendation. And so when he gets there, he finds believers and he presents this to them. And so they know the believers from this region. And so they receive him more Easily, right? But listen to what happens. So the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped. I love how it didn't just say he helped them. He greatly helped these guys. And it says he greatly helped those who had believed how? Through grace. Right? So, so one of the challenges with the, the, what Aquila and Priscilla brought to Apollos was the baptism up to John was all, it was all about the law. Everything up until John recognized Jesus the first time he sees him, right? All of this was the law. John the Baptist was a lawyer in the truest sense of the word. He was a man of the law. He was the last Old Testament prophet, even though he, he's found in the New Testament. It's fascinating. And so it, it says that he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So he understood now the gospel and he went from preaching the baptism 
in, of repentance um, so that, the, you know, as the Messiah is coming to the baptism um, in, in what Jesus had done to take away the sins of the world and that those who had believed in grace. In other words, the only way you can really believe, obviously, is in grace. There's no way that you can earn it. We, we know all this stuff, right? But look at verse 28. It says, this is what he did, how he, how he helped those greatly who believed the grace. It says, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. Like he didn't just refute them, he vigorously refuted them, <laughs> right? And he did it publicly, like he went after them big time. Um, but it wasn't the Greeks. He didn't refute the Greeks, he refuted the Jews. Why? Because he'd learned something from Aquila and Priscilla about the law and about the Jewish culture and all this stuff. So he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, and then this is what he did, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this was one of the fascinating things. When we think scripture, we think Old Testament and New Testament, right? Because that's what we have. They did not have this. Apollos didn't have this. All he had was, you know, Genesis through Malachi. That's what, that's what they had. They had the law. They had the prophets. And, and the Bible says from there, he preached to them that Jesus was the Messiah, which is a fascinating concept, that, that all of this, everything we know in the New Covenant was promised in the Old Covenant. Everything we know in the New Covenant, everything we sense and feel and, and, and see the fulfillment of, the promise of it and the symbolism of it came ahead of time and came on the front side of it. And so he goes after that and he preaches from the Scriptures. So he wasn't just sharing an idea. He wasn't just going, hey, you guys have heard it said, but I say, right? Jesus did that because he had the authority to do that. He was what, and what he was really doing, was what, he wasn't saying anything new. He was just fulfilling the scriptures. And this is, in some ways, this is exactly what he did. He said, from the scriptures. In other words, I have some great ideas about, you know, baptism and John versus baptism. Jesus is like, no, we don't care about your ideas. <laughs> what I care about is what has God said? What does scripture say? What's true, not what's your preference, right? Does that make sense? And so now using this foundation, both of me discovering that I was tying my shoes wrong and Apollo's discovering a more excellent way, right? So let me ask you this. Maybe, maybe there's something like this going on in you. Maybe your theology is incomplete. I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily. I'm just saying, would you be willing to entertain, as we go forward in this message, would you be willing to entertain the idea that maybe, just maybe, your theology might not be as complete as you think it is? Would you be open to that? So over the next couple of minutes, would you maybe swing wide the gates of your heart a little bit? Maybe even just crack them open a tiny hair? <laughs> and just, uh, Scripture says, so that the King of glory can, can come in. And so as I share the next part of this, would you be at least open to it before you just shut it down completely? Now I go to Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I preach this, and you hear me share this almost every single sermon I preach. There's reason for that. How on earth can we who are imperfect, sinners saved by grace, come boldly to God's throne? What kind of arrogance do you think you can have for you to come boldly before a throne? Like, some of you guys are not super happy about the current president. Maybe you weren't happy about the previous president. But if you came into the same room with this person, 
there would be at least some, I would hope, some respect for the office that they represented, even if it weren't for the man, right? And so how do we, as lowly as we are, come boldly before any throne, let alone the throne of God? And the answer is in the passage. Because for a believer, the throne of God is not a throne of judgment, but it's a throne of grace. For the unbeliever, it's a throne of judgment. And that's not me. That's, that's scripture. That's God talking. So I don't have to like it, but it, you know, I can like a lot of things that are true, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. So why is this important? Look at what it says. Why is it that we need to recognize that this throne is a throne of grace rather than a throne of judgment for the believer? It says, so that we may obtain mercy. Mercy is available, but do I obtain it on a regular basis? And then it says, and find grace. Can you lose grace? <laughs> right, there's a scripture um, that says that, that it talks about falling from grace. And everybody who I've ever heard talk about that scripture, what they mean when they interpret the scripture is falling away from the Lord, right? But that scripture, I'm not going to go into this because otherwise this would be a sermon and not a single message. But, but to fall from grace is not to fall away from God. It's to fall from grace back into the law. That's what that, the context of that scripture. So it's a short version of it. And so when it says you've fallen from grace, or in this, in this context, that you need to find grace, because somewhere along the line, you potentially have lost your concept of grace. And because of that, you don't go to the throne to obtain mercy and find help when? In your time of need. So when do you need grace? When you're doing it right or doing it wrong? Right, so this thing about grace for your house payment. Um, there's a grace period that's you know the, it says you have to send your payment in by this moment, but but they all put in a grace period because they know how human we are. So this is the law, but in this you know few days or whatever, that's the grace period. The grace period doesn't exist before the grace period. Y'all understand, right? The grace period only exists after you've come past the law and you need the grace period. Otherwise, it's not grace. It has, it has zero meaning if you, can, if you pay your payment before the grace period. You don't need it, right? And so the same thing is your, your sense of and understanding of grace is only important when you need it. When, you don't, when you're doing well, you don't cry out for grace you, you're not worried about coming before the throne. You're, you're doing well. You've been reading your scripture. You, you, you're doing it well. You're not concerned about that at all. But when do you need grace? When you sin and have missed the mark, that's when you need grace. Why? Because when you miss the mark, you're going off and you're setting in, into place some consequences for missing the mark that are going to begin to catch up with you. Now listen, there's not an eternal consequence if you, are a if you are a believer that you are going to lose your salvation. You know why? Because your salvation isn't dependent on what you do. It's dependent on what you believe. First 10 chapters of Hebrews, the only sin spoken of, go look it up, go read it. The only sin in the first 10 ch uh, chapters of Hebrews is the sin of unbelief. What's the only sin that can't be forgiven? 
unbelief. Why? Because it's literally, by definition, you don't believe something is paid for your sin. So the unbeliever is just that. They don't believe what Jesus did for them on the cross. See, how, see and, and we talk about this all the time. I heard it in a song the other day. It, you know, it's all about, you know, the balance. If I do a little more, I'm hoping I do more good than bad. I try to make up for all the bad stuff I did when I was a teenager and a young man. So, I, you know, I try to live better. I try to give. I, and, and all I'm doing is I'm just trying to, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing a game that doesn't exist. It's a game the enemy invented, right, to keep me from finding grace. So anyway, we'll go into that at a later date. So when do I need mercy and grace? And the answer is, um, when I need mercy and grace. So, we've been taught that you're just a sinner saved by grace. And so I use this a lot, and I make fun of that phrase. But I do it for a reason, because it, it's, it's, unfortunately, a, it paints a picture of the modern church's understanding of your walk with, with, with the Lord. So it says, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And so the picture that isn't, I'm a saint who sometimes sins. That's true, right? That's a truth. You can be a saint that sins. But if you are a sinner and you're saved by grace, those are opposing terms and opposing ideas. And you have to decide which one of those you're going to fall into. And here's why it matters so much, because it begin, you begin to take on the identity of the thing that you're focusing on, right? I'm going to get into that in just a second. But if you, are, if, if you hear that phrase and you, and you buy it, you know, I keep messing up. And the reason I do is because my nature hasn't really changed. I'm still the old person. My Bible school professor said this, and he was completely wrong. Uh, your, your, your old man is never so dead he can't be resurrected. That is, that is a lie from the pit of hell that's the same concept as the sinner saved by grace. Why? Because it's how you view yourself. In, in the truth of how God says you are. So you have to make a decision. Are you going to believe what you believe or are you going to believe the truth? You can believe something that is not true and it's, and it's not helpful to you. It has no effect whatsoever, right? Paul said as, as believers, if, if, what, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then all of us as believers are the most to be pitied in all of the world. Why? Because we're putting all of our faith, faith hope, and trust into something that is completely untrue. But if it's true, it changes everything, right? That's why you pursue it. So why is this important? Let me tell you what the Bible teaches about sinners saved by grace. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is mostly new. The old has sort of passed away. Behold, the new is eventually going to come, right? This is the sinner saved by grace translation. For our sake, he made, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become mostly the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4, 24. And put on the new self, or mostly new self, which is in mostly like God, and it's been created in sort of righteousness and holiness and mostly the truth. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So we've asked this question because uh, it was a sermon preached in our city many years back that got a bunch of people in trouble. Um, will the Spirit of God live in a dirty house? Right? It's a good question to ask. Well, here's what Scripture says. Don't you know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? You know who he was talking to? 
the Corinthian church. Go back and look at what these guys were doing when he said to them, you are the temple of God. It's, it's, it's amazing. First John 1, 9, one of my favorites. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness. Now listen, because this scripture is powerful. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we admit, and, and John goes after this big time. He's like, if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. That's pretty clear, right? He was pretty clear about that. But if you do recognize that you have sin, that you're broken, and that you are in need of a Savior, that means the work of the law, or the law has done its work in you, and you've seen your need for a Savior. You recognize you can't do it in your own strength. You can't obey the rules. There's something broken inside of you. that need, There's a heart inside you that needs to be replaced. You need a new heart, not a better one. You, you, you need a new leaf, not turn one over. Y'all get the, the concept. But listen to what this says, because we missed this first part. If we confess our sins, this is what it says. He is faithful and just. So to, to forgive us of our sins. He is faithful, which means he's, he's going to do it. It's trustworthy. You can believe it because he's, he's faithful. And then it says this. He's just to forgive us our sins. See, this is a big one that you can, you can place your, your theology in this. Your understanding of your forgiveness of sins can be placed in this scripture. Why? Because listen to what it says. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not, he's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to fix it. He's, not, it he's, he's paid the price. And so because of that, he is just when he says, I forgive you. Why? Because the sins have, uh, that you've committed have been paid for in full. Your sinful nature, what brought you to that place, because now you have confessed your need for him. The Bible says he's faithful, which means he's going to do it every time, and he's just. He's not breaking anything. As a matter of fact, he is the righteous judge. And he is judged righteously in that what Jesus paid for on the cross was not just enough, it was more than enough. And all of your sin has been taken away. So he's faithful and just, not I would love it if he just said, forgive us of our sins. But look at that next phrase. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness until you sin again. Right? We, add, we don't do this out loud because it's, it's ridiculous, as you can hear. But we do it internally. Yeah, Lord, I get that and I believe that. But if you knew what I did. And God's like, I actually knew what you did before you were going to did it. And I still loved you, and I still paid the price, which tells you how much I love you. Can we just maybe talk about how much I love you? Can we do that instead of talking about your sin? Isn't it funny that, that the, the definition, the Hebrew definition, the word for sin is to miss the mark, and all most churches talk about is missing? Almost nobody talks about the mark. What's the mark? The mark is, why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? Was it, was it focused on our sin? No. The sin was what was in the way of what he intended, which is beginning in the book of Genesis to walk with us in the cool of the day, to be in a relationship with us and us be in a relationship with him that was completely, all of the sin, anything that would get in the way of us being in a relationship with him, intimacy with our father has been removed as far as, as the east is from the west, right? It's beautiful, beautiful. Then he promises us a new heart. Ezekiel, very interesting. 
I'll give you a new heart. This is what God's promise is. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you, I will do this. You cannot do it. I will do it. I will do it. And we did it through the cross. Listen, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give it to you. You don't have to earn a heart of flesh. I'll give it to you as a gift. I will place my spirit within you. I will do this and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I will get you to the place where you look back and you go, what? I'm finding myself fulfilling the law, but not because I'm trying to fulfill the law, but because I've, I've been, the, the law of love has been fulfilled in me and love doesn't go after his neighbor's wife. Love doesn't murder. Lo, love doesn't take things from other people. The law of love, the law of Christ is the law of love. And when I begin to understand how much God has loved me, it begins to change my heart. And I not only begin to love him, but I begin to love other people as well. And I begin to see them the way he does. Look at Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Again, it's not about, it's, it's not automatic. You still have to, you still have to see your sin for what it is and your separation from God and come after this. So he says, and this, uh, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and listen with the full assurance that faith brings. What is faith? Believing that God did what he said he did. Remember, Abraham was commended because he believed God. He just believed that what God said was true. So this is what faith does. There's a full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us, not just from sin, but listen, from a guilty conscience. She's not just forgiving us for our sin, and I'm going to close with this, with the concept about that in just a second. And having our bodies washed with pure water. Peter talks about this clear conscience. He says in this water, because remember connecting, he's coming from being washed with pure water, right? It's not baptizing you in water saves you. It's a picture of what has happened to you, right? It's symbolism. He says this water symbolizes baptism, so he clears it up, that now saves you also. It symbolizes, the water symbolizes what's actually saving you. And he says, not the removal of dirt from the body. Let me pause right there. We make it so much about the sin. If you knew what I did, Dave, I'm like, will you please stop saying that? Because one, I don't want to know because I have to hang out with you and turn my back on you from time to time, and I don't want to have to play that game in my head, right? I'd rather not know your history. <laughs> and you don't need to know mine, except for God set me free from all these things. But listen, he said, not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not about your sin. You think it is, but it's not. That's easy. Jesus said, I'm paying the price. I paid the price. It is finished. You are totally forgiven. That part, easy, simple, done, finished. All of the old covenant speaks to it, promises it. And it happens on the cross. Now, what's the hard part? Do you believe it? Listen, he says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you, have, you can have a clear conscience, not because you've never sinned or never will sin again. That's not what creates the clear conscience. Look at it. It says there's a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. What Jesus did on the cross, if you confess your sins and you have believed that and you are trusting in him to have paid for all your sins, 
Either that has happened or it has not. It is not advice. The gospel is not advice. It's news. The only thing you can do with it is you can decide to receive it or reject it. You can't do anything else with it. If you try to do anything else with the gospel but receive it, then you are manipulating and unfortunately you are, um, trying to think of the right word for it, you are poisoning the gospel for lack of a better term. So what about patterns of sin in a believer's life? This is the question I get a lot. One guy said to me one time, he said, you keep preaching this message about grace, um, your people are going to be sinning. And I laughed at him out loud because I couldn't help it. And I said, I just, he goes, why are you laughing? I said, I just think it's funny that as a pastor, you think your people aren't sinning. You know why? Because they're not telling him. They're, they're not going to have a conversation with him as a pastor about their sinfulness, about the patterns of sin that they're struggling with. I've had, I've had guys come to me. I'll never forget a, a, a college and career guy who was helping us in youth ministry came, and he had gotten caught up in pornography, and he confessed his sin to me, and his full expectation was I was just going to reject him, throw him out. Because you know, he's, he's like, he said, I know, I know it's horrible. He goes, because, you know, um, I'm, I, if I could do that with pornography, you know, these little girls, young teenage girls in here, um, as a college and career guy, it'd just be so easy to take advantage of them. So I said, are you going to do that? He's like, dear God, no. But in his head, he was. Because you know, you know what he was? He was a pornographer. That's typically the people who create it. But in his head, he was the person who consumed it and created it, and he was fully into it. And what that was going to lead to was, you know, him going after these little girls. So I, I just simply said to him, I said, you know what? First of all, thank you for being willing to share the fact that you're in, you've, you've sinned. You have a pattern of sin. So I said, I want you to understand something. Um, sit down for a little while. That's not a bad thing, right? But the fact that you confessed your sin to me, Scripture says you confess our sins to one another, one to another, so that we can be free of them. It, our confession about the sins to one another is not what frees us from our sin. But it's a picture of, I believe God has forgiven me for it, but now I have a question, why am I still doing this? If Jesus has paid this price, what is it, what's missing, messed up inside of me to the point where I'm pursuing something I know is not good, not healthy, and not whole in every form or fashion? And the answer is, there's a desire in you that you are trying to fulfill outside of the only way God designed all desires to be fulfilled. And that's in Him. 100% fully in Him. If you pursue that, and say, God, I, I expect you to help fulfill those desires in me. Then what begins to happen is he begins to change us from the inside. And that's where we get to um, what, what Scripture talks about being transformed in our minds. But I have to move on. Jesus died once for all. People don't, they know this, but they don't know this. Let me just throw some Scriptures out here. First Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why he did it, to bring you to God. So that you can be free to be in relationship with God, even though you were unrighteous, he exchanged that for his righteousness. So now when you come to God, you don't come with your unrighteousness, you come with his righteousness. That's the gift of righteousness. John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now think about that for a second. He doesn't push it back one more year like, like the old covenant. 
He's taking away the sin of the whole world. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So if Jesus came to take away our sins, which sins? Right? Which sins? It's a good question. And if you don't ask this question and answer it from Scripture, remember, Apollos didn't go, I love that, Aquila and Priscilla. That was a great coffee conversation. It's a good idea. No, no, no. He went back and he said, from Scripture, what Aquila and Priscilla said were true. That was true. And now he can argue it, not from his passion and his eloquence or any of those things, but because it's true. And if you settle this in your heart, you stop being tricked and, and, and manipulated by the enemy on a regular basis, and you begin to grow like crazy, and you walk in maturity. So how does that work? The problem isn't about your heart or your nature or the fact that you're a new creation. The problem is in your mind. Like, that's good news, Dave. Thanks for telling me that my mind is broken. You're welcome. Romans 12, 2. We know it's coming. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed how? By being really, really sorry for your sins. <laughs> be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, please. And we get this one wrong, so I put this in a paraphrase, use a paraphrase to help bring it out. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's real repentance. That's metanoia. That's real repentance is changing the way you think. Not being sorry for your sins. That's not repentance. It's a small part of repentance. The biggest part of repentance is getting your mind changed, right? Why? He says, then you will learn to know God's will for you. In other words, when you get your mind transformed, you discover God's good and perfect will for you, and you walk in it. Well, that's what the old covenant was. What's God's good and perfect will for you? It's him. It's perfection, right? So give that a try. Does it work? I need a savior. Now come. And this is what he says. When you get your mind, when your mind begins to transform, what begins to happen is you begin to discover God's good and perfect will for you. You know what happens? Nobody can manipulate you. Nobody can talk to you about something. Nobody can take you to coffee with a good idea if it's not supported by Scripture. You just won't have it, right? So what does this mean? And this is really when it kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty. What if the enemy could deceive us into pursuing something in God that we already have? All right, remember Jesus, he's taken out. The um, Bible says the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, which is a, another sermon series. <laughs> but he goes in the wilderness being led by the Holy Spirit. He's confronted by the enemy with three challenges, right? And, and the three challenges are all from Scripture. He doesn't say one thing that's not from Scripture. But because Jesus knows his father and knows the relationship and, and knows scripture, the enemy can't use scripture to confuse him. Everything the enemy comes at him with scripture, Jesus basically pulls an Aquila and Priscilla <laughs> and he says, let me teach you a more excellent way. And what happens? These accusations come. There's nothing for them to grab hold of. Why? Because the truth is there, and God understands his relationship with his father. Jesus understands his relationship with his father. And so every accusation the enemy threw at him, it would not stick, even though it was from Scripture. 
That's important. And then what happens? The Bible says, then Jesus, when he was done with that, the Bible says the enemy went away from him for a season. How does this work in real life? You and I feel it all the time. Well, we're doing well. Things are going great. I, I get led away by some temptation. I'm on the road. I'm irritable. I get angry, and I yell at some guy in a Ford because he's in a Ford. I don't know. But whatever it is, I look at that and go, ah, that's not the mark at all. I mean, if he was in a Chevy, maybe I wouldn't have sinned, but he wasn't. So, <laughs> so, I, so what do I do? I just, I, I go, oh, is this never going to end? It's never going to change? Maybe this is just in my lot in life. You know what? I, this is a pattern I see in my life. You know what? This, this is just my identity. I guess this is just how it's always going to be. And so who is that voice to me? That's the enemy coming to me saying, you know what, Dave? What you just did is who you are. And if I don't know any better, if I don't know the truth, I will hear that lie and I will believe it. But listen, this is what it does to me that's so scary and so challenging is it in a moment cuts my relationship off with my father. Why? Because now shame, guilt, and condemnation are who I am, not what I did. And because of that now, I will not come to the throne of grace because one, I don't think it's a throne of grace. I think it's a throne of judgment. And I won't obtain mercy, although all the mercy that I would ever need is available. And I won't won't find grace because I'm not looking for grace. In all honesty, I'm looking for condemnation because that's what I've experienced my whole life. So my pushback again this morning, what does that, what does that look like for us? It's not that you don't have a new heart and you're not a new creation. It's that you have never allowed the transformation of your mind to occur. So how does that work? Hebrews, let me look at it again or sorry, Romans 12 two. don't conform to the pattern of this world. How do you not conform to the pattern of this world? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So what does that look like? In the Old Testament, I'm gonna close with this. In the Old Testament, Leviticus, I think it's 16. Let me just double check. Yeah, Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus 16. There's a story of two goats. <laughs> so under the law, this, and again, this is symbolism of what's coming on the cross. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, there would, be, there would be two goats, unblemished, they had to be perfect, spotless goats. They would bring them before Israel. The, the chief priest would confess the sins of Israel. So he would just, all the sins of Israel, he'd confess it over this goat. And then he would slice this goat's throat, and all of its blood would pour out. And the idea behind this is all the sin was placed on this goat, right? And this goat now has to pay for something it did not do with its blood, See the connection, right? So they slice the goat, and then obviously that's a picture of Jesus on the cross paying for your sin, right? All of, all of your sin was placed on him just like this goat, and, and then its blood was spilled, and, and it, the price of the sin was death. So you don't have to die because Jesus died on your behalf. It's a beautiful story, right? The challenge is most Christians only believe in one goat. That's a Twitter phrase right there, isn't it? <laughs> don't, don't put that on Twitter. But what about the second goat? The second goat, they would bring before the priest. He would do the exact same thing. Had to be unblemished, the same thing. He would confess the sins of Israel over this goat. And then he wouldn't kill it. He would send it out into the wilderness. He would, they would ostracize it from 
from wherever they were in Jerusalem. They would send it away, and that's where the, the term scapegoat comes from, to place someone else's sin and offense onto this goat and then send it away. So one is called propitiation for your sin. That's the first goat. That's what Jesus did. He created propitiation. He paid for your sin on the cross. The second one is called expiation. And it, it's the root word is it expels your guilt, your shame, and your condemnation. And can I tell you, the gospel is the antidote for guilt, shame, and condemnation. But it's so much a part of the first part of it. We get that, that he paid for our sin. But we don't fully believe that because when we deal with the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, because I know better, Jesus saved me, and I know better, and yet I sinned anyway. I got caught up in temptation, and I chose to willfully sin. Now, what is to be done? So I preached this message up in follow to about 40 or 50 men. Shorter version, but I didn't explain it as much, but I got the gist of it. And when I finished, an older man who'd been in his church his whole life came up to me and he said, I loved your message, but. And I'm like, here we go. So he said, I still think we need to ask for forgiveness for our sin. And so I just simply asked him a question that I'm asking you this morning as well. What happens if you don't? As a believer, you sin some juicy sin. Maybe you sinned a bunch of juicy sins. <laughs> Maybe you were on a roll <laughs> last week. I don't know. <laughs> but you sinned enough where there's a lot of them, right? A lot of individual sins. And you confessed all of them you could think about. What happened if you missed one? This is the question. What happens if you don't ask for forgiveness of each individual sin after you've been forgiven the first time? And his answer was, I don't know. And I said, and that's how the devil gets you. If you don't know the answer to this, when the enemy comes to you and tries to put guilt, shame, and condemnation on you, you give him permission to do it. You know how? He shows up on the door like, you know, uh, Amazon or FedEx or whatever. And uh, <laughs> he says, hey, you ordered this package. I need you to sign for it. With you signing for it, now you have legally decided that this, whatever this package is, belongs to you. But the question is, is it actually yours? Did you order it or did the devil order it for you and he's just trying to get you to sign for it? And here's what you do every time. You don't come back to that scripture in Hebrews and say, I can come boldly before the throne of grace for, to obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. If you don't come back to that and go, Jesus forgave me once for all. All of my sin has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness, never to, remember, to be remembered anymore. Come let us reason together, says God. Though your sins be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, I will separate your sin from you. Is that true or isn't it? So what, what does this look like going forward? And this is my challenge to you. Will you come to the throne of grace for help in time of need? 
Or will you try to figure it out yourself or obtain it yourself or go back under the law and fall from grace and try to obtain it in any other way? Here's what happens when you come to the Lord this way. If you sin, you fell into it, and you recognize that God has taken away your sin, he's forgiven you for all your sin, he's removed your guilt, shame, and condemnation because of expiation, the goat that sent out into the wilderness, Jesus carried our sin and our shame and our condemnation away, right? Now, how do you come before the Lord? Do you come boldly? Because let me challenge you with this. If you can't come boldly before the throne of grace, you don't actually believe it's a throne of grace. Three or four times Paul wrote in Romans, am I saying it's okay to sin? By all means, no. He came that short of cussing in that explanation. By all means, God forbid, am I saying that it's okay to sin? It's not. Sin has consequences. It'll bring death to relationships, all kinds of different things. But what happens when you sin is what determines how you walk out the rest of your life. And I would challenge us this morning and say, a bunch of us, I would believe, have been caught up in this guilt, shame, and condemnation to the point where we do not have intimacy with our Father. Because somewhere in the deep resources of our mind, it's not been transformed, and we still believe we bear the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation, even for the sin that maybe I'm going to sin tomorrow. And according to Scripture, what Apollos recognized was not your version or my version has anything to do with anything. It is what has God said about you and do you believe it? Amen? Would you stand with me? I love you guys. My prayer for us is when we get this, not that this would make us arrogant, but it would humble us. That's what happened with Apollos, I imagine. He was humbled beautifully by Aquila and Priscilla and recognized that he had been believing something inaccurately. And when he got it right, he became even more bold in the preaching of the gospel. And he helped the believers tremendously, especially those who believed in grace. And I want to challenge you, the next time you sin, what you do with that, I hope you remember back and go, what do I do now? Do I hang my head in shame, turn my face away from God because I believe he's turned his face away from me? Or do I come boldly and say, God, Thank you that I am forgiven. I'm not asking you for something you've already given me. Thank you that I am forgiven. Now let's have a conversation why I continue in this pattern of sin. And every time I've done that, I promise you, God will come back and he'll show me I'm trying to fulfill some desire that he placed inside of me in an illegal fashion. And if I pursue that desire in him and let him fulfill whatever those desires are, what I discover is I stop sinning. It's amazing. And I come into maturity. So as I pray for us, if you've been struggling with this, would you, would you come this morning boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find help in your time of need? Would you do that this morning? So Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you not only took away and paid for our sin, Lord, but you took away our shame, our guilt, and our condemnation, Lord. Um, placed it as far away as the east is from the west, Lord, never to connect again. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that as we celebrate Independence Day as a nation, Lord, um, there's a bigger Independence Day that we celebrate, our freedom in you. Lord, you said it is for freedom's sake that we have been set free. So, Lord, we want to walk in that freedom, that place of intimacy and connection with you, knowing 
fully, fully assured by faith that our sins have been forgiven once and for all. Jesus, thank you that I am clean and I can come before you boldly for help in time of need. In your name I pray, amen. If you need prayer this morning, our team will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful holiday weekend and we'll see you guys next Sunday.